You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. I think it's a very fortunate environment because uh, the supporters are so positive and also the media. Uh, they don't get on you uh, as much as I think they would do in Europe. So after a bad performance, you know, maybe the next day in the paper, uh, they'll give you like a you know, performance rating or something like a one out of 10 or, you know, you'll rarely see that in Japan. You know, I think it takes a lot for them to bring out like a critical tone here. He's got uh, the vision of making the J-League like the Premier League of, of Asia. So he wants all the top uh, Asian talents to come here. And I definitely agree with that vision. Um, it definitely has the potential to do so. Him and his translator, so they're in two SUVs packed full with toys and we just drove up to an orphanage. I told them we were coming, but um, the kids had no idea. And all of a sudden you had Lucas Podolski standing there with two cars full of toys and he kind of lit up everyone's faces. But that was the kinds of things he, he liked to do, uh, even if it didn't make it into the into the media or into the press. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. Now, I'm always interested in different leagues around the world, and the J-League stands out. In episode 37, I spoke to Kei Kayama about the international development of the J-League, and in this one, I'm talking to Ken Lambert, who looks after digital and PR for Vissel Kobe, one of the teams in the J-League. We talk about a lot of things, social media, communication strategy, the DAZONE deal, international strategy, and spend a lot of time talking about Lucas Podolski, a player that Ken had at Vissel Kobe and I was involved with at Arsenal. And um, yeah, it led to a bit of a false ending to this one, but we just wanted to talk about Lucas for a little bit. As I said, my name is Richard Clark. I'm a consultant in sports digital, content strategy, social media, communications, marketing, all that kind of area. You can find me at mrrichardclark.com and that's where you'll find the show notes for this episode because let's talk about it. It's time. Lucas Podolski, the J-League, Vissel Kobe, with this man. My name is Ken Lambert. Um, I'm uh, the PR manager at Vissel Kobe, uh, the professional soccer club or football club, I should say, in the J-1 first division in Japan. And um, yeah, my primary duties are uh, media, uh, liaison, so to say, a press officer uh, slash uh, di- digital media manager. So I deal with press uh, and I also uh, handle the contents um, on our social media channels. So thanks for speaking to me, Ken. Um, just tell us about the J-League because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast might not know too much about the J-League. Um, the, the span of the season, how many teams, how far you travel, for example, um, any any leagues as well, as, sorry, any cups as well as leagues. So those sort of basic information so everyone's up to speed. So, I mean, uh, the J-League itself started in the early 90s. Um, it hasn't even been 30 years yet of existence, but um, what originally started with a small number of clubs uh, now has um, teams spanning in the J1, J2, J3 divisions. And um, in the J1, it's generally 18 clubs. Um, but this season, um, which will begin, uh, well, we're in preseason now because the J League season always begins um, at the start of the calendar year and ends at the end. So in, uh, usually in December. 
So that's a bit difficult, uh, different from the, the European schedule, which probably most football fans are familiar with. Yeah, we'll be starting uh, at the end of February with our first uh, league match. And um, then we'll have uh, what is also uh, the League Cup, uh, which I think uh, British fans will be familiar with. Um, so that's just the first division teams uh, doing their own cup competition. In Japan, it's called the Le- Levan Cup. Um, that's the main sponsor there. Um, then there's the uh, Emperor's Cup, which is kind of like the FA Cup. Um, it's the oldest competition in Japan. I think, uh, I think they just had their hundredth one last year. Uh, Vissel Kobe managed to win, uh, the 99th, uh, version of it, uh, the year before. So I guess that'll be going into the hundred and first one this season. And then we also have, uh, yeah, the J league that I mentioned earlier. And then also there's the, uh, Asian champions league, um, organized by the AFC, the Asian Football Confederation, which we were lucky enough to be a part of uh, last season, but um, we got knocked out in the semifinals. And how did you end up in the J-League? I saw you on LinkedIn and you're trilingual, so you're English, German and Japanese, right? I was I was lucky, I guess. Uh, I have a German father and Japanese mom, so I kind of just picked those languages up through, through them. I, w- I was born in New York City, so Pretty much all of my education was in English. Um, so English is my strongest language. But I also spent some time living in Frankfurt as a child and Tokyo. So just moving around, um, you know, was definitely huge in uh, learning the languages. Yeah, how I ended up uh, working in the J-League. Um, I, I guess I should go back a little bit. I, I did a degree in sports management at the German Sport University in Cologne. And from there, I actually started working for a Bundesliga club, uh, FC Cologne. And uh, after spending a few years there, I kind of just decided to leave on my own terms because I, I had a strong desire to come back to Japan because I had only lived here as a, as a child. And it was kind of a dream of mine to, to live here again. After four years at FC Cologne, um, I decided to make the switch to come to Japan. And um, I had some contacts at Vista Kobe. One of those uh, was also uh, Lucas Podolski, um, who was a former player at FC Cologne who was playing at Vista at the time. And then, yeah, things moved pretty quickly. And uh, I was able to start at Vista to begin their new season. I know Poldy very well, having worked with, with him at Arsenal. And um, right. we'll come to Poldy in a minute because yeah. he's, he's a force of nature. He's <laughs> a character, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've worked at Cologne. Your job with Cologne was more on the international side, is that right, rather than media? Well, originally I started there um, doing social media. So like the um, primarily the English uh, Twitter account, Facebook account, and the homepage. Cologne had just signed uh, their second Japanese player. So I guess they were looking for an English speaker, but because I had that added bonus of speaking Japanese, um, they picked me, so to say, and we just kind of on the whim decided to launch a Japanese Twitter page as well, because Twitter happens to be the most popular uh, social media network in Japan. It's, um, one of the few countries, I think, where there's more Twitter users than Facebook. So um, it just seemed like the smart thing to do at the time. And 
after doing that for about two years, um, the team was, you know, kind of getting, gaining more and more exposure. Um, there were more and more talks with, uh, like international companies or teams. And, um, I started to work a little bit more closely with the CEO on, um, kind of like international development projects, business development, just finding partnerships and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I did that, but I did that parallel to my uh, existing communications duties. So how does it differ in terms of media requirements, Europe to Japan? Any, any major differences in, in, in the way it works, what the media want, what you have to provide on a communications level? I mean, the, the biggest difference by far is just the uh, amount of attention. So in, in Germany, you know, football is number one, two, and three on the, on the sports news. Um, you know, they'll, they'll go through the first division, second division, third division, then they might cover Formula One or something, and then they'll go to handball, maybe. Uh, in Japan, uh, the top draw in sports is baseball. Uh, baseball is king here, and then, you know, you're competing with, uh, like, a traditional sport like sumo, which has uh, a large following as well, and then, you know, there's a lot of different types of sports leagues, uh, so football isn't really um, on people's minds, so to say, as, as much um, as it is in Germany, and in Germany, you know, anything you do, anything a player does, would usually end up in the local newspaper, uh, in, in Cologne, there was four new, uh, major newspapers. You can also have those like boulevard types, um, those like daily newspapers. But um, so like over there, it's hard to stay out of the papers. Whereas here, it's a little bit more difficult to, difficult to get in the papers. Um, you're always trying to kind of work with the journalist to, to, to get a story or to, to manage a way to get an appearance, you know, and... Um, but still, you're usually not like the, the big back page, front page, you know, that, that usually still goes to baseball. So there's definitely the challenge of like growing the popularity and the recognition here because I was coming from an environment where it was like uh, it was a given. So you're actively pitching. You're actually pitching to news outlets, to radio outlets to get stories in. It, it, does it work that way? In, in a way, yes, because... Uh, for, so, you know, for example, in, in, in Germany, so when you have a, a Bundesliga club and you've got these newspapers that, you know, they want stories, you might um, give them a player maybe once a week and do like an interview round with all the journalists. So that player will talk and then, you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to see him in, in all the uh, newspapers in the next day in, in Japan um, we can do that and, and in Germany you would pick the player the club would probably pick the player and say okay we, we kind of want to go with this guy he's been in good form or we want them to pick up this guy he's, he's young he's got a bright future that kind of thing whereas here it's um, the, the journalists um, we give them a little bit more say of who they want to pick up um, of course there's times when we as a club want to push certain players but um, usually they, they will tell us like, yeah, we, we kind of want to get a statement from this player or that player because that will have a higher likelihood of making it into the paper of, or of them making a story about it that will get picked up. So I would say there's definitely a lot more dialogue here and, uh, you know, finding a, a, the right strategy, so to say, in, a, in 
getting our getting our players, getting the club noticed. When I was at Arsenal, it always struck me that the Japanese media, because we had a player, Jenichi uh, Inamoto, so we had a lot mm-hmm. of Japanese media over here uh, for a period of time. And it always struck me that they're relatively still strong with newspapers, relatively in comparison to other areas. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, is that true or is it, you know, is it still newspapers, radio, TV, or is it the internet portals, the goals.com and, and, th- and things like that, that you, you tend to see in your press conferences? Um, no, it's definitely still a very strong newspaper presence. Um, those are kind of like the main guys that will drive the, the questions and um, that will get the conversation going. Um, I think it's rare to, for television um, to be there. Um, you might get the local, local news sometimes, um, usually not the national um, news, um, unless maybe it's a, like a football program or something that will come from time to time. But um, yeah, it's definitely a, a lot more of the of the newspaper uh, media. And you put it on weekly press conferences, pre-match, post-match, maybe the occasional feature. Is, is that the sort of run of things? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, in the pre-COVID days, um, you know, we would we would do kind of like an interview round uh, for the journalists. Um, they would come to the clubhouse uh, the day before a game, and then usually you would have the we would guarantee that the 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 manager would speak to them, and then usually um, as the players are you know leaving, they kind of pass by the journalists. We we have them like we had them sectioned off to a certain. Base, so they wouldn't bother the players at their, you know, by their cars and stuff, and so we could control them a little bit more. But we would listen to their um, requirements or needs, uh, so to say, of who they want to talk to, and then we would talk with the players, you know, if they're willing to to answer a couple questions or something like that. Um, is it a mix zone? It's like a mix zone, is it? Yeah, exactly. It's a mix zone. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, if if someone comes with a camera, they can set it up as well, but. Now with the uh, corona, um, we've restricted access to the clubhouse for journalists as well. So everything goes uh, on Zoom. So, I mean, we'll do the same thing with uh, the coach uh, or the manager. I should say. He'll, be, uh, he'll do the pre-match conference uh, like the day before. And then we'll talk to the, the journalists about, you know, who they would like to hear from. And um, we always pick two players. So if there happens to be like somebody that maybe we want to put out there, then we'll do one of each or something. If there isn't, we'll, we'll take two of the players that they, they mentioned. How big is your department? Uh, for PR, we've got four people now. Then there's two additional people that are in a group called like the promotions department. They kind of like marketing. And um, then there's, an additional three, four, four, uh, three people doing like graphic design and um, just, you know, producing uh, content. And then there's an additional person for the homepage. So that's... That's the team that is pushing out communications and website content. That That's it. Right, it? right. Okay. I mean, they're also, they're, I mean, they're our designers, uh, the graphic designers. So they'll, they'll be doing, you know, just more than that. They'll be doing the billboards and the, 
the ads and all kinds of things that you'll see around town or in the stadium. And the strategy behind that, does that come from you? Are you, are you in charge of that department? Uh, no, we have a communications director. Okay, cool. Who, who sits um, above me. He, he, he kind of runs those three mini departments, so to say. And I looked at your website. It's very different to a, a, an American website or a US website. There's a definite Japanese feel to it. Um, right. it's, it's quite a busy website. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's interesting in that sense. Um, so, 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 you know, Roughly speaking, in a nutshell, what do you what 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 are you trying to do with your strategy? How does a website fit in? How does the social fit in? What what's the strategy of uh, Fissel Kobe? We have um, a parent company called uh, Doxten. Um, I, I think most people know them as the jersey sponsors of FC Barcelona. In recent years, also they have the sponsorship of uh, the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. The overall strategy is that we work in unison with our parent companies. So things like um, ticket sales, um, merchandise sales, those kinds of things are, are, are linked with Ruxin. Uh, so there's a, usually um, if you visit our page and you want to purchase certain things, you have to get a Ruxin ID, uh, essentially a Ruxin account. Um, so then you make your account and then you can, you know, go on to getting your tickets or your, or your, uh, you know, merchandise. So um, the main strategy is always to have people within that um, ecosystem. And so that's primarily for the homepage. And then, you know, for social, obviously you want to do that as well, but we're trying to uh, broaden our fan base, which is probably the same for other clubs as well, but um, just trying to, you know, increase the following, increase the awareness um, and, trying to trying to get just gain more people to uh, know about the club and know about uh, the company and i noticed obviously we talk about your social media you said twitter's your biggest it seemed to be you were strongest from what i saw again you tell me certainly strong on twitter and relatively strong on youtube as well it, it seemed that those were the two that um certainly followers wise i thought you were strongest in maybe instagram to a certain extent as well how do you see it in terms of our followers, um, we're actually uh, top uh, in the league in Instagram followers. So um, we're, we're doing quite well there. But um, Twitter, um, we're, like I said earlier, there's most or like a lot of Japanese people use Twitter. Um, relatively speaking, we are not that high in terms of the follower count. There's other clubs with a lot more. Um, and YouTube, I think think we've been passed by one or two clubs but um at the start of last year we had the most uh followers there but we kind of started changing our strategy now where uh we're doing a lot more um, paid content uh so there's a new service called Vistal channel plus where um if you're a fan club member uh, you can access it for free or you can also just pay to just watch the videos. So it's kind of shifting from a, everything is free to like a, um, like a membership based uh, access. And of course, the membership is paid through Rakuten's right, right. Uh, ecosystem. And, the, uh, right. And, the money. and of course, that's why you're on Viber, right? I'm, I'm right in thinking Viber, which is you're on four social media and Viber and Viber is yeah, exactly. a little bit WhatsApp. 
WhatsAppy. It's not very popular over here, I have to say. But it's, yeah, <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a Rakuten product, right? I'm right in thinking. Right. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's something um, that it's also part of our company. So you know, like in-house uh, messaging, and you know, for work, uh, we use Viber, and you can set up like profile pages for the for the club or for uh, players as well. And there's these like neat things called like stickers where you can create like these animated um, versions of like the players, you know, kind of like emojis um, so that we have those kinds of things there. But um, yeah, it's like you said, it's um, most similar to WhatsApp, but um, we like to say that it's uh, a more secure version of WhatsApp. And there's, you know, there's <laughs> minor differences. Point. Yeah, exactly. There's, al- there's always, you know, some some differences, but, you know, you, you can't really dictate uh, what people choose to use, especially if they're, if the, you know, most of the European market is already so used to WhatsApp and it's hard to get those kinds of people to change their behavior. Uh, it was interesting you said that, that you're so high up on Instagram in comparison to the rest of the league and done pretty well on, on Twitter, you know, been in the sort of top one, two, three, because no disrespect, I didn't think Vissel Kobe were the most successful, most prestigious Japanese side. I and mean, when you, when you won the Emperor's Cup, that was your first ever trophy you'd won, right? So right. is is that popularity on social down to the overseas players? Obviously, Podolski, the Marlin, uh, and the biggest one, Iniesta. Is that is that is that the reason? Right. Yeah. Um, it's like you said. Um, this club has never won the league title, um, and that Emperor's Cup win. You know, like the which is. Uh, like the English FA Cup, but that was the first title this, this club has ever won. Um, so I was lucky to be a part of that. And the subsequent uh, Super Cup, you know, which was the league winner against the cup winner, uh, we were able to win that trophy as well. So um, the club actually only has two trophies and both came very recent. Um, so that uh, social media following um, particularly on Instagram, you can attribute it, I guess, a lot of it to those um, internationally recognized players um, like Podolski, like Iniesta, and then Villa, who came after that. Um, they definitely gave the club a push. And you can see that um, effect with other players at other clubs as well. Um, like the there's a, a player by the name of Tiraton, by, uh, who plays at uh, Yokohama Marinos. He used to play at Vessel Kobe as well. He's uh, from Thailand, and um, he actually has a very large Thai following. Um, so those people, you know, they followed Vessel, and then now that he plays for Yokohama, they, they probably start following the Yokohama team, so they have a lot of followers, for example, on Twitter. Um, and then Hokkaido has a, a Thai player as well by the name of Chanatip. So he's got a huge following as well. And then you'll look at uh, a club like Cerezo Osaka. Um, they have like by far the most followers on Facebook out of all the clubs. It's like they're on like another level and people are like, why do they have so many? But um, they had a really strong kind of push or effect when they signed Diego Forlan uh, some years ago. So usually it's those international superstars that when they they come and make a transfer that they definitely give a a huge boost to those social media numbers. Um, I was going to mention Thailand because I did a podcast um, 
with Kai, who from who was from the international development for the J League, and he said that, that the J League's targeting Thailand a lot for its mm-hmm. international development. It's at the stage now where it's starting to look to develop overseas and particularly within Southeast Asia and become the dominant league within Southeast Asia. Um, how's that affected you? Are you doing any Thai content? Or I know there's been some sort of fan parties that have been done perhaps more for the league than an individual club, but, but are you part of that process? Um, so we are not part of that process, to be honest. I mean, I know uh, Kay um, very well. Um, you know, we, we are in dialogue about, you know, promoting the J League overseas because, um, you know, like you mentioned, he's got uh, the vision of making the J League like the Premier League of, of Asia. So he wants all the top uh, Asian talents to come here. And, um, you know, I, th- I, th- I definitely agree with that vision. Um, I think it, it definitely has the potential to do so. Um, and they, I, he did some great work in Thailand. Like, um, I think they had the like some of the trains there completely covered with the J League advertising and things like that. And they they really pushed uh, some of the games um, where the, where you could see their um, their two main uh, Thai players that I mentioned earlier, uh, Tiraton and Chanatip. So when like Yokohama played Hokkaido, I think they made a big event out of that. But um, for the most part, um, we as a club are not that involved in the in the Thai uh, promotion aspect. Um, I know, like the J League has uh, content that they do in English, and um, you know th- that's uh, a page where you know they'll they'll push Iniesta a lot, which makes sense. Obviously, he's recognizable worldwide. But um, yeah, as regards to the Thai market, it's not something that's um a priority so to say for our club as of now and in a similar vein the disown deal which is seen as a a real world leader deal in the in the length of the deal obviously it's been 10 years and it's been extended it's got a spotify aspect to it as well they've, they've advertised it that way in terms of it's in incentive-based profit sharing not just fixed fees as well and of course, it's a streaming platform. Um, and it very much when I spoke to uh, uh, Kai K, um, he was talking about that very much being a, a tool that they would use to develop the league. And it was definitely a partnership. It wasn't just a you're, you're our broadcaster, you pay us money. We work mm-hmm. together. So that zone deal, is, does that, that filter down to the communications and PR level? Have zone have got specific? particular um, demands, interests in terms of promoting their product because obviously, you know, it's a, it's a relatively new company. It's almost a startup. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, there, there is a system in place that incentivizes clubs to promote um, to zone uh, like membership application. Um, so, you know, there's a, a system in place where if we get, people to register through, you know, our provided links or our provided advertisement that it also benefits the club. So it is something that we actively try to do. Um, and also there is a, um, another system in place where, you know, the J league and the zone, um, will kind of give us, uh, like a creative freedom, so to say, to create 
advertisement or to create a, a, like a marketing campaign or such um, to promote the zone as well. So uh, it's not just like a straight down, like here, do this, or um, here's this content we made posted now. It's more like a, all right, like here's some resources and um, you know, you guys come up with something that makes sense for you that can also help us. So um, in that sense, I think it's a very positive partnership. Moving on, uh, you just come back, or not recently, relatively recently, come back from that um, uh, Asian Champions League. Obviously, the Emperor's Cup victory got you into the Asian Champions League. You had a good run. And what was it, 23 days in the bubble yeah. in Qatar for yeah. the Champions League? So how was how was that experience? Because that's you know, that's the equivalent of the UEFA Champions League. Every, every confederation has a... Um, has its own champions league it's a it's a major mm-hmm. thing in the area yeah so i mean when it started you know we we were still super excited at the start because uh that was before kind of corona changed the world um so we did manage to play the first two uh matches in the group league um the first game, the opener was uh, our home game, and we were able to win 5-0. Uh, homegrown talent scored a hat-trick. You know, Iniesta had, a, I think, a hat-trick of assists. Um, it was like a great start to the campaign. Uh, second match was in South Korea. Um, it was like a, it was a very tough game, very cold, but we got the 90th minute winner. So, you know, we started the campaign with six points and then Corona kind of, you know, changed everything. And um, in the end, we had to go to Qatar, you know, because it was all being uh, it was all taking place in a centralized location. So, you know, the J-League schedule had to be adjusted accordingly. So we suddenly had, you know, match after match after match, uh, you know, you know, two, three matches a week, usually. Um, obviously very tiring for the players and staff because, you know, you're constantly on the go. And then, you know, we go to Qatar and shortly before we go, we find out that uh, the Malaysian club, Johor, uh, won't be attending because... Uh, I, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, but I think it was that the, the government uh, didn't allow them to uh, to go, to participate. So, you know, suddenly uh, those matches that, or that match we had with them was nullified. Um, and we were all of a sudden found ourselves in a three-team group, um, which also kind of uh, came to our advantage because we had uh, one less match to play in, uh, while we were over there. But it was a it was a very interesting experience. I mean, you know, you get there before we go, we had to do a PCR test uh, once we got there um, or even on already on the on the flight there. We had to wear like a face shield uh, with the mask. And then, you know, the Qatar Airways gives you like a little kit with like rubber gloves and sanitizers and all the stuff. And then. Yeah, it was pretty intense. And then you arrive and then right away, the first thing you do is uh, another PCR test. And then you're led through the airport and we go to the hotel. And upon entering the hotel, we've got there's people there that are in like full body plastic suits and they have like sanitizer mist kind of thing that they spray you up and down with. 
finally get to your rooms, but you can't leave until the test results come in. So uh, you get food delivered to your room. And we had our breakfast and lunch there. And then I think finally after like, I don't remember how many hours it was, uh, maybe like seven, eight hours, um, you know, you get the, the message. Okay, everybody's test results came back negative. You guys can go train. So that's how it started. But even then, like, the only times we can leave the hotel is to go to training or to the stadium to play the matches. And otherwise we're in hotel lockdown. That was definitely a, an interesting, challenging uh, experience. And how's COVID affecting the league coming up? Cause you're starting end of February. So yeah. you know, how's it affecting PR and, uh, and the league in general, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, Usually you would want to, you know, you've got like the home opener and you want to fill the stadium. But um, as of right now, I think uh, they're saying that we can allow up to 5,000 fans um, because, you know, they want to be able to socially distance the people that would attend uh, in the stadium. But um, there's been talks uh, it's not official yet of maybe the, the league starting without any fans. But as of now, um, the information is that up to 5,000 um, should be okay. But because it's not determined yet, we, we also haven't started selling tickets. So I think it's going to be maybe like a last-minute decision from the league. I think they're still weighing their options, uh, you know, weighing the safety risks and all that Um I think there's a lot of factors that they need to think about. And obviously, you know, people also need to make the decision themselves if they can uh, attend the stadium, if they want to do that, you know, because. Right. Let's talk about Lucas Podolski. Um, at Arsenal, he was one of the most characterful players I've ever worked with. And he certainly loved creating content. In fact, he was a mm -hmm. bit of a content machine himself. Um, Have you got any anecdotes? Uh, yeah. Well, if you go into YouTube and type in uh, Podolsky's noise, when we went on tour in Asia, and I think it was in Japan he was doing this, he was making a noise, literally walking around on the plane, in the hotel, at the events, making a noise which was, ah, uh -huh. and he was going, ah, uh -huh, all the time. Yeah. And it, it sounds ridiculous, but he does it in, in a very... I, I remember does... seeing that. I was following that on, online. <laughs> he, does, well, he does it with a time. smile on his face. And he does it with a smiley face. He's got all the kids doing it at some of the events. And he turned it into a, obviously he had a bit, a bit of a clothing brand at the time. He turned it into a charity um, line of clothing with aha on it. So he actually mm -hmm. monetized it, obviously all for charity. It wasn't for his own benefit. But, you know, that was, um, uh, that's typical Podolsky because um, not only did he get something done through sort of force of character, uh, something a little bit crazy, unusual through force of character. He got everyone involved and he's actually clever enough to make it work for him as well. Um, he's a little bit underestimated in that, in that, uh, in terms of his reputation, he's a bit underestimated. So, you know, that's my take on Podolsky. Um, it seemed to me that the Japanese, when he was out with us in Japan, uh, the, the way the Japanese were, which was very, very respectful in their approach to celebrity they loved him to bits because he would approach them. Whereas most right. people in most people or footballers in England are waiting for,
for people to approach them because that's what they're used to and that's what always happens well in japan people are very respectful they say i remember we did a, an event at a nike store in nagoya and ryo maichi was there and it was the only place we ever went ever with arsenal where all the kids in the in the nike store or all the people in the in the nike store sat down in rows and when they wanted to ask a question they put their hand up normally it's a melee but in japan they were all respectful i mean yeah i think that that definitely speaks to like the character of the japanese people and just the cultural aspect of you know like people are very respectful and there's um yeah i guess like obedience as well and just being mindful of man like good manners and things like that so i'm not surprised uh, when you say that and th yeah the other aspect you also mentioned i think uh, maybe a lot of japanese people are kind of introverted so when you have like a a super alpha extrovert like lucas podolsky then you know he's a he's a hit because you know he's he's he has such a strong personality he's got a strong voice um a big presence um so I, I, he was definitely a, a beloved figure here uh, just a slight tangent does that respectful uh, you use the word obedient um but certainly well mannered does that come through in the media's approach definitely um definitely definitely because uh in germany um oftentimes you would have articles published that you as a club would probably disagree with maybe there's a they're writing kind of in a negative way you know putting the club down maybe putting a player down um with a, so I, i guess what i'm trying to say is that the tone was usually more critical so you know if you're doing well obviously they will praise you but if things aren't going well uh the media will be very critical and uh, sometimes downright harsh Uh, in Japan, that's rarely the case. Um, it's also uh, among the supporters, you know, even if you lose, they'll be supporting you and saying, you know, we can win the next one kind of thing. So it's, I think it's a very fortunate environment because uh, the supporters are so positive and also the media, uh, they don't get on you uh, as much as I think they would do in Europe. Um, so after a bad performance, you know, maybe the next day in the paper, uh, they'll give you like a, you know, performance rating or something like a one out of 10 or, you know, <laughs> this player didn't manage to do anything right or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, you'll rarely see that in Japan. You know, I think it takes a lot for them to be, uh, to bring out like a critical tone here. And I remember speaking to Arsene Wenger while we were over there and we did an interview with the, with the Japanese media. I was sitting in the background because I was doing some content around it and he did it like a, a, a he was speaking to a couple of journalists and he turned around to me afterwards and he said, this is why I love Japan because all the media's questions were about how do we improve? How do we get better? And it, it keys into what you just said. It kind of, it's flipped round. It's looking towards how do, how can things improve? How can things get better? Um, how can we organize? How can we be, be in such a way ordered? So things will get better generally. And mm -hmm. he, I remember him saying that that was one of the things he loved about Japan and the, and, and even the Japanese media, that their sense of looking on the upside, looking for improvement rather than tearing down, which kind of 
keys into what you've what you've said right and yeah i mean that's definitely the good part of it um you know the, on the other side you might think that you know you would expect uh media or journalists to be a little bit you know more critical at times um or certainly hold people to account that's right right um for you know like for example uh, if you ha- put in a poor performance uh and you're playing in one of the big leagues in europe i suppose that uh they'll write about it and then you know if you go out into town uh people will let you know about it as well you know um and i think that's something that the players won't experience here so i think that there's probably less pressure um because there isn't that added aspect um which also i think probably isn't necessarily uh i mean a good thing like completely um i think people you know if you're a footballer you should be able to go out and you know grab dinner without being harassed so i think you know in a lot of times uh, in europe maybe it's a bit extreme um that everything gets scrutinized but um i think japan is kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum where um they really don't have to like worry too much about something like that like being you know confronted or something if they're out on town and just finally turning to the league as a whole you know what would you do over the next five years or what what would you like to see how would you like to see it improve over the next five years in what type of areas does it need to strengthen um i mean i think that part we talked about with k in terms of the global aspect is important because i think if you get more players from those southeast asian countries um you will have that phenomenon where they will tune into the J League you know very much like if we have Shinji Kagawa going to Manchester United you know Japanese people start watching United games and you know whatever big european club now has a japanese player you know japanese media will flock there so i think that same phenomenon can be applied to um countries in asia that if we get some of those best uh, some of their best players to come play in the J League you will increase viewership uh, throughout asia and strengthen the j league brand but also domestically um because uh professional football is still far behind uh baseball in terms of popularity we definitely need to work on uh you know just getting the j league to be uh, a more beloved product and um just getting people to be to care more about about their local club and that's i guess something that each club has to do on their own is to uh strengthen ties with the community you know even if someone was previously not a football fan maybe they c- you can get them to support you because you're from the same community and strengthen the fan base and the the appeal uh, through that manner Ken Lambert, thank you very much. Um, are you good with that? Yeah. You don't want to talk about like another anic- a few Lucas stories go on, or anything go, like go that? Go on, give me a Lucas, a Lucas <laughs> Go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. I, I'm I mean, all for do, Lucas Padilla. Do you want to do you want to edit it in later or something? I'll, I mean, like, I, do you know what? I might, I might, I might actually just leave this as it is. Leave it running. Leave it real. Uh, I was going to end it, but you want to tell me about Lucas Padilla? I tell you what, I will. 
always make time for Lucas Podolski. He is a ray of sunshine, I was going to say. Well, kind of. <laughs> he's, he's, he certainly makes you smile all the time. So go on, yeah. tell me about Lucas. I mean, uh, you know, he, he. I think he did a lot for the club when he came here. Um, he, he always talked to me about, you know, how he, he spoke with the club owner about, you know, kind of remodeling the uh some you know aspects of the stadium you know like the kind of like the vip boxes and then also revamping the uh the locker room at the clubhouse you know to get it you know to kind of have a more modern look so he he helped the club in those kinds of aspects um and yeah the other aspect you talked about with him you know being underlooked sometimes with his personal brand um, you know, he set up like uh, his clothing brand to, you know, sell products in Japanese. And he, he always managed to do that. And I think in a positive way, because he was always kind of uh, very authentic in everything he did and in the way he spoke and, and the way he was. And uh, I do have like a moment that isn't necessarily like a haha funny Lucas moment. I mean, there were a lot of those like. For, okay, for example, like the game, uh, the, I think it was two days before the Emperor's Cup final. Um, you know, the whole team was like a little bit on edge. It was the last training at the clubhouse before we traveled to Tokyo. At the end of training, he was, he like decided to go into goal and started, and he actually was doing quite well, uh, <laughs> blocking a few shots and things like that. So he, and I asked him about it, like, you know, that was funny, like, was some, good content he was but he you know he did it with like a consciously because he was saying you know everybody seemed a bit tense so i kind of wanted to brighten the mood get the guys a little bit more relaxed uh which i think he definitely managed to do um and you know there's another story like he he told me at the time uh not to to put it out to the press or to put it online because he wasn't doing it for the recognition but uh he had like a, a bunch of toys at his house um that you know belonged to his kids but his kids were now in europe so he had all this stuff left over and then i think he also decided to get a few additional toys um it was right around like the christmas season and he told me to look up some um like orphanages or places where children are that you know don't have much and he just kind of, you know, we, he had him and his translator. So they're in two SUVs packed full with toys. And we just drove up to an orphanage. And, uh, I mean, I told them, you know, that we were coming, but, um, the kids had no idea. And all of a sudden you had Lucas Podolski, you know, standing there with two cars full of toys and it kind of lit up everyone's faces, but that was the kinds of things he, he liked to do. Uh, even if it didn't, make it into the into the media or into the press um because I, I i think he cared about those kinds of things a lot too I, I know he has his own charity in in germany so you know there was always like the the like joking goofy kind of side of him and then there was also like the the business side but there's also like the the caring side of like the behind the scenes so you know i think the people here really got to experience like all kinds of sides of him. And that's why he, he's like a lasting beloved figure here. And his beloved in Germany. I mean, his retirement for Germany, um, I think, was it, was it hundred caps 
was it actually on his 100th cap? Anyway, he scored right at the end and he spends 20 minutes dancing around with the fans afterwards. Um, yeah, yeah. On his last, last appearance. That's very typical Podolski. Um, with a cannon of a left foot to beat England, right? That, that, uh, that, that's, I've forgotten it was against England, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I, I know it was a late, late long range goal. I've forgotten it was against England. Right. Um, but, you know, when I, I remember speaking to some German journalists about him and they talked about a German phrase, you may know it, I don't. Uh, they described him as, I think we call it street smart, but they call mm-hmm. it farmer smart. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the phrase, but basically he's he he comes across as as um, uh, a happy-go-lucky kind of fella, but there's a there's a lot more going on there with Lucas Podolski. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, he leaves wherever he's been, all the clubs that he's been to, probably with the exception of the short unhappy time at Bayern Munich. Every club he's been to, I, I think he he's left has something of, of a hero. Um, mm-hmm. Even even if his performances for the team weren't that great, because because at Arsenal he he's not actually probably considered a massive success, but he's loved, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Because and part of the reason with that was he's very very good on social media, very good. yeah. And, and he he identified with Arsenal. I think he, he I think he's a fan to this day because he would always check the scores to see how they were doing and things even after he had left. And it's the same with Cologne, you know he. That's where he started, but also teams like Galatasaray, where he had a few years of success in Turkey. Those clubs he always followed even after he was gone, and he was always wishing them success. So I think that was definitely you know part of his personality. And it, it's funny because we have like several uh, kind of big name guys that have come to Kobe, but he's the only one that was like very ex- like not extravagant, but like what's the word he's just very kind of out there like he put himself more out there extroverted yeah because we have guys like Iniesta and Villa who who you know they're superstars uh World Cup winners but they were a little bit more like quiet um you know super friendly super you know nice guys um you know great to work with as well but um they don't have that extroverted personality that Lucas has. And uh, it's the same with, uh, for example, Thomas Vermalen, who's here now, Sergio Samper. They're, they're all kind of um, on the more quiet side. Uh, super professional, you know. Um, you can also get along with them great, I think. Um, but, you know, they're not like the people that will like willingly go in front of the camera, so to say. And that may be why they're attracted to Japan, because everybody knows the Jap- the Japanese reputation of being a little bit more respectful, a little bit less in your face. And if you, you know, I worked in Major League Soccer, right? You, you foreign players end up in Major League Soccer um, towards the end of their careers. Like, no disrespect, a lot of players towards the end of their careers end up in in Japan. But the media attention is going to be strong, and you're going to have to do a lot of media work in Japan. The media work, from what you're telling me is more restricted and certainly more respectful if you're a character like Thomas Famalen who's a really good guy but he's not an extrovert like um Lucas Podolski that's mm-hmm. that appeals I bet that appeals right right because <laughs> it's a serious football nation where they want to improve they want to get better but they don't have all the media hoopla that their characters don't particularly like 
Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's about these guys also being able to go out into the city and walk around without, you know, constantly being surrounded. So they can lead relatively normal lives here um, while still playing, you know, the sport that they love to play, that they, that, you know, they're professionals at and that they're good at. So I think there's definitely that balance. How do the foreign managers cope with it? Because obviously Torsten Frink, you had him there. Um, mm-hmm. h- how did how do they handle the cultural side of it? Obviously, football's football, um, but you know, foreign managers don't adapt to England. Sometimes foreign managers don't mm. adapt to Germany. So, how does a foreign manager adapt to Japan? Because culturally, it is very different from Europe. I can only speak to the case of Torsten Fink, but I think he adapted quite well. He seemed very happy here. I mean, Kobe is a it's a beautiful city. Um, it's got the the sea, the the city, and the mountain. Mean, it's sandwiched in between the sea and the mountain. So you've got nature, but it's also very clean, uh, very safe. Um, people are, you know, qu- uh, quiet but you know friendly. Like they will leave you alone, but if they recognize you, you know, they won't, you know, they won't put their arm around you and say, "Hey, selfie time." They'll you know, probably like cautiously approach you and say, hey, maybe can I get a photo? And, um, you know, I, I saw that when I was with him, like uh, out on the town. We, we also have um, uh, interpreters for our foreign players. So in, in the case of the, the coach, um, the, the guy, his name is Nori, uh, Nori Kazumurakami. He was the uh, interpreter for Lucas. And, um, you know, they did everything together. You know, it's not just on the pitch, you know, you're supporting them off the pitch as well to a hundred percent. And he kind of took on that duty also for the, for the German coaches as well. So I think having those kinds of, uh, people on staff helps the, uh, transition for foreigners to come here. And we, we have somebody like that for, for all the languages that are needed here. So. Cool. All right, <laughs> I'm going to end it there. Sorry, you took me on a diversion at the end, but uh, but that was a good diversion because I, I there was a little bit more going on with Podolsky that we needed to talk about Podolsky. You're absolutely right. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's just I mean, there's stories about him, but maybe I can't talk about them all here. Uh, yeah, well, a <laughs> a that's a whole podcast. Uh, secondly, yeah. secondly, yeah, probably. Um, there's going to be some that we can't talk about, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> but Ken Lambert, thank you very much anyway. Thank you. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. 